Hello everybody and welcome to Stories of the Stone Circles, the archaeology podcast all about Britain and Ireland during the time of Stone Circles, where we talk about stone circles and the other important archaeology from this period and investigate the lives of the people who were alive thousands of years ago. My name's Nick Overton and I'm an archaeologist and a member of Project Time and right now I'm here to bring you some bonus content in between our regular monthly podcasts. In the first of our podcasts released last month, Dr Seren Griffiths joined us to introduce Project Time so now it only seems right that we introduce you to all of the team members. So let's go and meet the team and see what parts of the project they are especially looking forward to. So first up, uh, we have Dr. Saren Griffiths. Hi, Saren. Hello. Hi. So you joined us on the last episode of the podcast and you told us all about Project Time, this new archaeology uh, project which this podcast is attached to. Could you just remind the listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, the research that you do? I'm senior lecturer in archaeological science and public archaeology at uh, Manchester Met University. Um, and you don't get many uh, senior lecturers in archaeological science and public archaeology. And that's because I designed my own job title. And what I'm interested in is the big picture, how we tell stories and how we disseminate those stories to people who aren't academics. So what I'm interested in is uh, time, narrative and chronology and how that impacts on what we're able to say about the past. Nice. Uh, And in the last episode of the podcast as well, you told us about, you didn't just tell us about Project Time, you told us about why it was so exciting as a project. Um, But is there a particular element of it that you're especially excited to do? Yeah, so I always think about this in terms of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So in a part of that, there's a whale falling to earth and uh, in its initial consciousness, it kind of goes, wow, man, space is big, it's really big. And then a series of horrible things happen to it as it plummets to its death. Um, but and that's how I feel about those bits of the past where we don't have sufficient chronological precision to be able to tell the kinds of stories that we'd like to. So in what is conventionally called prehistory in Europe, there are these vast swathes of time, or apparently there are, which are undifferentiated because we don't have the chronological precision to do that until recently. And what, uh, of course, that's just an artifact of the interpretive tools and methods that we have at our disposal and the imprecision of traditional prehistory. And what Project Time is going to do is populate that vast swathe of time with a series of punctuated events. And we're going to get a much more granular, much more fine grains um, chronology timescale onto which to situate these events. And that takes us from this impersonal, blurred, Uh, impression of the past into a much more personal, much more intimate, much more connected uh, type of narrative. And that's kind of approaching historical timescales of precision. And so it's, it's taking it from this faceless, impersonal version of the past down into a past where we can start to tell detailed stories about people and places and their times. Well, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And of course, uh, any listener who's uh, interested in, in hearing a little more about 
what you have to say about telling stories and understanding time in archaeology. If they haven't already, they can go back to last week's podcast where they can hear you talk about that in a little more detail. And of course, they, they get some other uh, tidbits of information, such as your favourite on-site biscuit. So uh, who could resist going back and, and having a listen to that? Um, so uh, we're going we're gonna to hear from you again in future episodes of this podcast. Uh, but until then, uh, thank you very much. So next on the team sheet, we've got Dr. Ben Edwards. Hi, Ben. Hello. Hi. So, uh, Ben, the listeners haven't met you before, so could you give them a little introduction to uh, yourself and your research? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm Dr. Ben Edwards. I'm a reader in heritage and archaeology at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, my research specialisms, latterly at least, most recent part of my career, has been sort of digital heritage and uh, digital archaeology. So I've been doing a lot of laser scanning work, objects, structured light scanning, um, but as well a lot of landscape scale stuff. So using satellite remote sensing to map archeological remains, uh, interrogation of LIDAR data, uh, things like that. Basically a lot of metric, three-dimensional and sort of remote sensing work really. Nice, nice. And, and so given your background in digital archeology span and mapping and imaging, uh, what part of this project are you particularly looking forward to or excited uh, to do? Well, I think the most interesting outcome for me, um, given my background in sort of visualising digital things, is um, once we get this incredible amount of temporal data from, the, from the, you know, the agglomeration of radiocarbon dates, but then displaying those visually using GIS and geographically. So if you wanted to put it in a kind of really fancy way, it would be the geographical visualization of temporal data, you know, but even if that's something as simple as heat maps on a, you know, on a, a map of the United Kingdom and Ireland or something like that, um, I think that would be a really interesting way of bringing a visual geographical dimension to something that usually we just see as digits on a page, you know, a date range a, 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 with some error bars either side of it. I, I think that's going to be the most interesting bit for me. Yeah, fantastic. Of course, like thinking about the way in which the project can tell new new stories, but also find new ways to tell stories of the past, your, your visualisation work is going to be really important in that. Well, hopefully, yeah. I think one of the important things about communicating archaeological findings as well um, it's such an inherently visual discipline, you know, artifacts and these great monuments and sites out in the landscape, that actually the time dimension, the passage of time, or indeed in our case, the hard facts of radiocarbon dates, is actually one of those things that you can't always visualize, you know, say as well as you could have a, a reconstruction drawing of a henge or a 3D laser scan of a standing stone. So I think that's really the, the biggest challenge in visualization and communication, um, not necessarily just to other academics, but to you know the sort of public outreach element of what we're trying to do as well. Yeah, well, that gives everybody something uh, really big to look forward to as we go through this project. Um, so uh, until we hear from you again in the podcast, and I'm sure we will in, in future episodes, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so next on the list is Professor Tom Hyam. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? 
Yeah, right. very well. Thanks. Very well. Um, so uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, who you are and, uh, and what your research is? Yeah. OK, so um, I work in Oxford at the university there, the University of Oxford, and I am the director of the Oxford Radio Carbon Accelerator Unit. And uh, I've been working here for almost 20 years. And I am very interested in providing chronologies to uh, colleagues and submitters and collaborators to make um, the best use of radiocarbon to date the past, the archaeological past. Our lab is one of the um, only labs in the world. In fact, it is the only lab in the world that specializes in archaeological chronology building and dating. And right from the inception of the lab, it's been within the Research Lab for Archaeology, which is um, a facility that, that was set up actually very soon after the development of the radiocarbon method in, in uh, 1949. And it's, uh, it's a lab that works on developing methods in archaeological science. And so for many years, we've had an interest and an expertise in, in archaeological chronology building. So my background is in that field. I worked uh, in the previous, my previous uh, role. I was a, a radiocarbon data working as a doctoral student in New Zealand at the University of Waikato, where there's a very uh, nice radiocarbon facility. And uh, I came over here in 2001 to um, continue the work at the Oxford Lab. And that's where I'm based. Nice, lovely. Okay, so um, now that project time is is fully getting underway, is there a particular part of the project that you're you're particularly sort of excited or interested in? So um, I'm interested in two things really, and the first is to try to provide the most reliable, accurate, and precise dates that we can. And this has been considerably enhanced in the last. Uh, year and a half by our acquisition of a new accelerator. So here in Oxford, we measure radiocarbon particles using a, a, a particle accelerator. And the, the, the accelerators over the last uh, 25 years have become smaller, more compact, and with less of an environmental footprint, they don't take as much uh, to run. Um, so the cost is much lower. And our accelerator is um, called a MICADIS, and that stands for micro or mini radiocarbon dating system. And so if you can imagine a, a machine, it's about three meters by two and a half meters in size. It's very small and compact. Whereas the previous machine that we had was more than 20 meters long and about seven meters wide. So you get an idea of the small size of this machine. So our machine enables us not only to date samples very much more quickly than previously, but also much more precisely. So for a project like Project Time, we're looking at getting down to plus or minus 19 to 22 years in terms of precision. And that's really important because when we, as you can probably imagine, when we get more precise dates, we can use those dates in Bayesian models and Bayesian model building more effectively. We don't need so many dates that are um, of the old imprecise kind. We, we can get by with fewer. The other thing I'm really interested in is, um, is getting the right dates by removing contaminants. And contamination is a problem that has plagued radiocarbon for many years, not in every case, but certainly in many cases. And so using the most up-to-date methods of isolating the bone proteins and the bone amino acids is something that I'm very interested in. Over and above just the measurement and analytical side of the project, however, I'm very much interested in the interpretation of the dates and the results that we're going to obtain and how that plays out upon our understanding of these interesting archeological transformations that take place during this key period in British uh, prehistory. And so, um, as you, many of you will probably know, we've, um, we've had a, something of a revolution in the last uh, 20 or so years in terms of 
archaeological chronology building by using Bayesian methods that allow us to increase the precision on our estimates for um, chronologies uh, from the past and get down to talking about generations that have elapsed in terms of the buildings of some of these monuments and ancient sites. And so one of the most exciting things from all of the work that we're going to put together in the lab is how interpretatively those results play out and what they tell us. Of course, that's really the most exciting part of a project like this. So I'm interested in seeing how these dates fit together from these various sites and what they mean and what they tell us about the ancient past. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, in the next few months, we're going to have a special podcast all about archaeology and dating. So where you're talking about how we how we date things um, mm -hmm. in terms of what materials can be dated, how we go about working with that data, and then how we turn that data into narratives and stories about people will be exactly what we talk about in the episode. So we look forward to hearing from you again in the next month or two. Um, so until then, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, and next we're going to go over the Irish Sea and join Dr. Neil Carlin. Hi, Neil. Hi, Nick. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks as well. Good, marvellous. Uh, so, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Yeah, so, as you said, my name is Neil. I'm a lecturer in the School of Archaeology here in University College Dublin. And I suppose most of my research focuses on the islands of Ireland and Britain in their wider European context during the, the third millennium BC in particular, but I tend to stray a little bit either side into the fourth millennium and the second millennium. I suppose what we might ordinarily call the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. Nice, lovely. And I know from stuff that we've been chatting about before that you're quite excited in this project um, to think about something called the Grooveware Complex. Could you, uh, could you talk a bit about what that is and, and why it's quite exciting or interesting? Yeah, sure. Well, I suppose sometimes this is referred to as the Grootra complex or the Grootra phenomenon. And I think once archaeologists start using labels like complex or phenomenon, it's a giveaway that there's a lot here that we don't really understand. So we're talking about this thing called Grootra. Grootra is this type of ceramic that first begins to be used on the Orkney Islands, probably around 3300 BC. It gets its name because of the fact that some of this pottery is heavily decorated with these incisions or grooves. Uh, it happens to be the earliest flat-based ceramic that we see on these islands. But what's really interesting is that sometime after 3300 BC, probably about 300 years later, about 3000 BC, we see that people all across the islands of Ireland and Britain have adopted this 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 pottery. So this is unusual in terms of it's an innovation or a cultural novelty that we see moving mo moving southwards. And of course, archaeologists for the last 100 years or so have liked to kind of group different types of, of artifacts and monuments together to form these kind of cultural units. And of course, that goes back to a time before radiocarbon dating was invented as a way of kind of ma managing data, kind of identifying that, you know, this has this geographic distribution, has this chronological horizon. And so we have this grooved where 
complex or, or phenomenon. And that's taught to comprise a number of contemporary cultural innovations. We see particular types of monumental architecture, large earthen, cir circular and timber enclosures. And then we see other types of distinctive artifacts and material culture like these uh, really beautiful stone mace heads, stone balls, stone plaques. And what many of these objects have in common is that they're sometimes decorated with the same sorts of of motifs that we see occurring on, on, on Grooveware. Now, what, these things are often considered to be strongly interrelated and are grouped together as this kind of complex. So there's this idea that all across Britain and Ireland, everybody adopts these. But, but what's really interesting is that, in fact, it's quite uh, regionally diverse uh, and that many of the things that have been lumped together to form this chronological unit or this Grooveware complex, actually, they originate in different parts of the islands of Britain and Ireland. So what, what we're actually seeing is that different things are being brought together in different ways at different times in different places. So there's a lot of complexity to this. And what's really exciting about this new project is that we're moving away from this kind of homogenous approach. We're kind of homogenized and said, okay, everybody was doing this in the same way at the same time. Actually, no, that's not what's happening. So we're going to be able to unpick that and kind of look at the, the different times that people are doing these different things with these with these same objects. Well, yeah, who can argue with that? Taking amazing monuments or taking amazing material culture and breaking it down to really think about, um, yeah, those different stories we can tell about people in different places. That all sounds amazing. Um, and I think you mentioned earthen circles. and uh, I did. Yeah, and, and I, I think we're going to have you back in a month or two to do a whole podcast episode about earthen circles, which listeners will probably recognise under the name of henges, but um, we'll discuss that in more detail uh, in that coming episode. So until then, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. And we're going to stay in Ireland, and next we're going to meet Penny Johnston. Hi, Penny. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Fantastic. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your research? Yeah, I'm an Irish archaeologist. Um, many years ago, I went to the University of Sheffield and I became an archaeobotanist. So I'm interested in looking at plant remains from archaeological sites. A lot of my experience has been on uh, in commercial archaeology. And so um, up to now, I haven't really focused on any period in particular. I've done material from as early as the Mesolithic until later into the post medieval period. And that has been my most of my research and my work life today. Nice, very, very cool. Um, so given that your speciality is uh, sort of plant remains, is there is there anything in this project sort of plant-based that you're particularly excited about looking at? Yes, I'm glad you asked me. I'm really excited about looking at the remains of charred apples from this period from 3500 to 2000 BC. And um, one of the reasons is because I've come across um, pits that are full of lots of charred apples, um, just from a few sites, but I found a couple of parallels as well. Um, I'm just fascinated as to what they could be doing, why are they burning all these apples? 
Uh, a lot of the time they're associated with uh, pottery like um, groupware and sometimes with beaker pottery as well. And um, uh, because that's the sort of pottery that you often find in structured special deposits, I'm kind of wondering whether the plant remains also have symbolic value. And I'm really interested in looking at other people's plant remains results and like bringing a lot of the material together and having a look at in this project. That sounds very exciting indeed. Uh, and you've written our latest blog post on our website, haven't you, all about this topic. So uh, if anybody's listening um, and that really uh, excites them, they can go and check out that blog post now. So that's on our project website. That's project-time.blog. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll, we're going to hear from you um, in future podcast episodes where I think we're going to talk about humans and plants uh, in a lot more detail. So until then, uh, thank you very much, Penny. Thanks. Goodbye. And now we're joined by Professor Julian Thomas. Hi, Julian. Hi. Hi. So uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and your research? So I'm Professor of Archaeology at the University of Manchester, and I specialise in the Neolithic of Britain and Northwest Europe. I also work a lot on the history and philosophy and theory of archaeology. Lovely, great. And so now that we've started Project Time in earnest, uh, is there a particular part of this that you're especially looking forward to uh, doing? Yeah, I'm really excited about what the project's going to tell us about the monumental architecture of the later Neolithic. So we have these things called Hinge Monuments, which are named after Stonehenge, which is a terribly bad name because Stonehenge isn't a terribly good example of a Hinge Monument. Some of these have ditches around them and sometimes the, the bank is on the outer side of the ditch. Um, but very often those banks and ditches are the very last thing to happen on these sites. So we might talk about hinging as something that happens rather than hinge monuments. And if the things that are surrounded by these hinge banks and ditches are earlier than the banks and ditches, they are many and various. So sometimes you've got uh, timber circles, sometimes you've got stone circles, sometimes you've got things that look a bit like houses. And our problem has always been, we don't know where all of this is starting, how all of this is starting, where of all of these disparate elements are coming from, when something coherent emerges, and then when it disappears sometime in the early Bronze Age. So I think this project is really well placed to try and sort out what the relationships are between all of these different structural elements. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the um, the discussions that uh, we've already heard from Seren and Tom about the, the new dates and the high precision dating and the modelling of dates to produce new chronologies will really help in sort of bring out the detail in this story. Yeah, absolutely. So which of these different elements is earliest? Also, where in the country are they starting? Because you could make an argument that all of this uh, late Neolithic architecture is starting way up in the north of Scotland, you could equally make an argument that something is happening in central Wessex. Well, are those two separate processes that somehow merge together, or is one genuinely earlier? And I think it's all playful. Absolutely. You know, everything to stay tuned for as well. Okay, Nick Overton, 
you've done many of these little interviews. Now it's your turn. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Julian. Um, uh, I am uh, a researcher at the University of Manchester, uh, and I specialise in the analysis of animal bones from archaeological uh, uh, contexts. Uh, we call that zooarchaeology. Um, and in particular, I study the periods that we would traditionally call the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. So the Mesolithic is around about nine and a half thousand BC uh, to 4000 BC, uh, where we are seeing uh, what we would describe as hunter-gatherer communities in Britain. And then after 4000 BC, we, we come into the period um, that which you traditionally call the Neolithic and then running again into the Bronze Age, the periods that Project Time uh, is covering. Okay, Nick, so now that the project is up and running, what particularly excites you uh, about the project? What are we going to do that is really going to uh, get you going? Well, uh, I'm really interested in thinking about the relationship between humans and animals in the past. Uh, and in particular, because I think that our modern understanding of, of our relationships between humans and animals is quite sort of uh, food oriented. Um, and it doesn't necessarily give us a lot of scope to think differently about how animals might have been seen um, in, in prehistory. Uh, and this period that Project Time is looking at is really interesting because when this period that we call the Neolithic begins, 4000 BC, there or thereabouts, we see the arrival of farming into Britain and with that we have new kinds of animals so domestic animals cows sheep pig and goat um, and we have new practices in particular farming and it's really interesting to think about how these new ways of living uh, might have produced uh, new types of human identities. So much in the same way as that uh, I could ask you, Julian, or anybody else, whether they're a cat person or a dog person, um, and people's relationships with one of these animals seems to affect their own individual identities. We can think about this um, in terms of what animals people farm. So we've got some lovely examples in, in anthropology of groups that say keep cattle and they have a deep mistrust of local groups around them who don't keep cattle. So we can see that farming certain animals uh, is tied really intimately into people's identities. So in Project Time, looking at this period from three and a half thousand to one and a half thousand BC, I'm interested to see what people, um, what animals people are, are engaging with where this is happening um, and if there's any difference across time and space and if there is how this is bound into people's identities changing and merging uh, over time. So there we have all the wonderful team members of Project Time and you can look forward to hearing from all of them again in our regularly monthly podcast episodes over the coming months, starting with Professor Julian Thomas, who will be joining us to talk about the period 3500 to 1500 BC in Britain and Ireland and picking out some of the key themes and debates that he's interested in. Keep an eye out for that episode released later this month. And Stories of the Stone Circles is now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and CastBox. So subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter with our handle at Project Time Arc, that's A-R-C-H at the end. And you can visit our website, project-time.blog. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs>